right, brothers. So we have a big chunk of scripture, as you know. Um, John chapter 6, verses 30 through 71. And I've titled this particular uh, section, broad section, Our All-Sufficient Savior. Our All-Sufficient Savior. Because that's really the, 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 the heart of this particular big section. Okay, When Jesus speaks of himself being the bread of life. Um, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo was a man who lived in the 4th century A.D. And, you know, there's so much to tell about Augustine. But Augustine grew up with a Christian mother who sought to do the best that she could in being faithful to teaching her son the things of the Lord. And obviously she was a prayer warrior, so would pray for her, son to, for son, her son's salvation. And when Augustine left home, primarily, he already had this wicked heart, but when he left home, he really uh, sort of spiraled downward. He got entrenched in feudal academia and sinful intellectualism for selfish pursuits. He surrounded himself with bad company and bad influences. He pursued sinful pleasure. Not that pleasure, God is against pleasure, but sinful, wicked pleasure. And Augustine really went downhill very fast in his own life and lived a life of wanton pleasure and all of that. Well, thankfully, Later on in life, Augustine had a, had a collision with Jesus, with the risen Christ. And the Lord changed his heart. He came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he began to walk with the Lord. And Augustine was, went on to accomplish some great things, wrote some amazing, wonderful, edifying things for the church at large that many, maybe some of you have read, including his, his confessions, where he talks about some of the things that he did and the journey that God took him to or brought him to the, uh, come to the end of himself and, and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, Augustine came to the point where he was really broken. And he became famous for many good things, as I said, but also for stating the following. He stated this, You, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I mean, that, really, that statement really encapsulates Augustine's experience and his great discovery of, in life. Augustine was a man, brothers, who came to the end of himself, who came to recognize that all of the things that he had been pursuing, pleasure and possessions and the wrong kinds of people and even personal accolade and all of those things for the wrong reasons, none of those things satisfied Augustine. All of those things constantly kept him wanting before Jesus. And then he met the risen Christ, and now he had met one that finally could satisfy him. And so he articulated that. And, you know, as I thought about that, and I read Augustine over the years, how many of us cannot identify with Augustine? Amen? How many of us can't say that the, the, the video plays and replays in our minds of all of the things that we pursued prior to the Lord Jesus Christ... Just, that just constantly remind us of, wow, I, I, I can't believe I actually pursued those things. And I could actually believe that those things would satisfy me. And then everything changed, didn't it? Like for Augustine, where he, he had a collision with the risen Jesus. And now all of a sudden, similarly us, we met Christ and everything changed. But the battle and the struggle began, didn't it? How many of you guys can say a hearty amen and identify with the fact that the man of God who wants to walk with Christ, that that is an ongoing struggle? Amen, brothers? Amen. Yeah, it's an ongoing battle. Because having given our life to Jesus upon conversion, 
If you're going to pursue Christ and pursue Christ being at the center of your life, that's a, a daily struggle and a daily battle for us. Um, I mean, life didn't get any easier for me. In fact, it got harder when I came to know Christ because now I had new desires in my flesh that, that, that life of indep- that seeks independence from God, all of a sudden that became even stronger where I wanted to pursue my sin all the more, but I had these desires now of wanting to honor and glorify Christ. Can you identify with that? Every single one of us can. A daily life lived with Christ at the center and with Christ as our all-sufficiency is a daily struggle. And this is why our, our passage today, this, this long section, is so important for us. Because I think the Apostle John in verses 30 through 71 really reminds us here, presents Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior in whom we must place our heartfelt trust and wholehearted devotion. That's really the gist of this particular passage. Now, it's a, a big passage, I realize, but remember the context, okay? This passage comes on the heels of the amazing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, okay? And in between in our narrative... John talks about this private miracle that takes place of Jesus walking on water before his disciples, but then he gets back to the um, miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 to really articulate for us in this narrative the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. And really to, to answer the question for us, what are we to take away from that mighty miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? What is the takeaway? Okay? So as we look at this passage of uh, just articulating the all-sufficiency of Jesus, I want you to take notes under four main headings, okay? Here, here they are. First of all, if you're taking notes, write down the superficial crowds. The superficial crowds in verses 30 through 34. In the immediate verses, as you've studied already, we see that the, that the crowds who were the beneficiaries of Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they want to be around Jesus. They're looking for him. And they finally find him, but they don't want to be around Jesus because they actually believe him, but because they want another miracle. They want to be fed. They want their stomachs full yet again. They are materialistic people and multitudes. So they find him. And, you know, as I studied this, I don't know about you, but as I I was pondering and meditating these passages, I was just scratching my head. I mean, these people have just witnessed an amazing, mighty, powerful miracle. And please take note, it wasn't just 5,000 people that Jesus fed. It was 5,000 men, right? Plus, consider that some of these men were married, so their wives were there. And if you throw in there one or two kiddos, I mean, you're talking about anywhere in the upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people that our Lord had just fed. I mean, that is awesome. That is astounding. That is something to marvel about. But instead of marveling at this unrivaled power of Jesus, so as, to, so as to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, which is the whole point of the Gospel of John, what do these superficial crowds ask of Jesus? Look at verse 30. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What do they want? Show us another one, Jesus. Show us another miracle. In fact, show us a miracle 
on the level of what our, our fathers in Exodus chapter 16 saw back in the day when God, through Moses, gave our, for our fathers manna from heaven. Show us another one. Jesus answers, look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. The gist of what Jesus says there in verses 32 and 33 is, you people are so focused on Moses, but it wasn't even Moses who gave you those miracles. My father, Moses was simply the instrument through whom God, Yahweh, gave you that manna from heaven. And right now, God is offering you something greater than that manna from heaven. He's offering you the bread of life, namely himself. Pretty amazing. But they're so focused on this. That manna was temporal, Jesus says. But in the present, Yahweh is providing someone greater than anything material and temporal. Now listen, you would think that they would respond to this, but they're so deceived, aren't they? You've studied this. They're so superficial. Look at verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. I mean, they're clueless. They're missing the point. They're so fixated on the, on the earthly. It's as if Jesus' words are going in one ear and out the other with these individuals. Boy, times haven't changed, have they? I mean, just look at the world around you. Isn't it so typical of the world in which we live, brothers, for people to be so focused on, the, on, the, on materialism, on the toys that they could accumulate, on the possessions that they can have, and they give very little thought to true spiritual things because they're so focused on the, on the stuff of life, on material possessions. And the reality of it is, you know this, Lest we think that we're any different in the church, even as Christians, we can struggle with this. Even as Christian men who desire to honor Jesus, we too can struggle with setting our eyes on the things of the earth way too much. That's why Colossians 3.1 says what? If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things where? Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you, believer, have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So even as believers, we need to be exhorted and reminded of the fact that so oftentimes we can put our focus on the things that are of the earth and not enough on spiritual realities. And oftentimes we can even treat Jesus this way as believers, where we tend to think of Jesus as, as sort of another wonder worker, even subconsciously, another man, uh, some sort of cosmic genie that we simply come to and he answers our every call. Instead of cultivating a relationship with him. So see, there's, there's some lessons for us to learn even as we see these crowds in the response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if that's you today, and that's a struggle for you, then you don't have an accurate, an accurate picture of Christ. That could be said for all of us as believers. We're growing in our understanding of Jesus. But make sure, brothers, be warned that, that, that we need to make sure that we're not worshiping a Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible, right? The Jesus of John's gospel, even as believers. That is why this is so important for us to be involved as men in daily Bible study and even in, in community together so that we would be confronted with the true Christ of the Bible, the true God of the Bible. 
That's what the Word of God does for us. So that's the superficial crowds. Make sure that you are not counted amongst them. The superficial crowds who came to Jesus, not because they loved the giver, but because they loved the gifts. They loved the benefits of being around Jesus, right? Let us not be one of those superficial crowds. Consider second, if you're taking notes on your outline, okay? Write this down. The all-sufficient Savior. The all-sufficient Savior in verses 35 through 40. They have just requested of him, as we saw in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always in response to, to his offer. And now Jesus is pretty clear. He pointedly answers their request in verses 35 and 36. Notice there, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Now you know this. That is a loaded self-claim by Jesus. I am the bread of life. I mean, right away those words should recall to your mind Exodus chapter 3, where God tells Moses that when he goes to the Israelites and they ask him, why should we listen to you, Moses? What was Moses to tell them? I am has sent me. And who was that? Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the universe. And that, that's, that title, I am, is so significant because on the one hand, it pointed to the eternal existence of God, to the one who has no beginning and no end, to the one who has always been and always will be. And secondly, it pointed to the exhaustive sufficiency of God to the one who could provide for all of his people's needs so that you never are in need ever, ever again. That's the significance of even that particular name. Well, no one can do that but God alone. No one can provide for everything that you need. No one can be your all-sufficiency except the one true God. And so this is an explicit assertion of Jesus' deity here. For him to say, I am the bread of life. What a statement. It must have been a shock to people of the day, to those who, who even caught a glimpse of, of the reality of what Jesus was saying, that he is the one who could sustain them. And you see, they're missing this. Again, they're so fixated on the, on the temporal, settling for the scraps and the, scr and the crumbs of life, that before them, Jesus is saying, I am offering you myself. I am the bread that never ends. I am the unending bread of life. I am the one that if you partake of me, if you believe in me, you forevermore will be satisfied with regards to your spiritual hunger. You'll never hunger again. They don't see it. And isn't that the problem with our world? Isn't that the problem whenever you share the gospel with, with loved ones who don't know Jesus? They don't see him. They're looking for other things to be satisfied with. They're looking for possessions. They're seeking worldly pleasure and people and politics. And they put their hope in other things rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. So our all-sufficient Savior here knows that only He and He alone can quench their spiritual thirst and spiritual hunger. But they're deceived. They don't have spiritual eyes to see. Jesus points this out in verse 36. You simply won't believe. Unbelief is their problem, not a lack of evidence. Unbelief is their problem. They're spiritually blind. They're hopeless. They can't respond to spiritual stimuli. Well, not to worry. Jesus goes on to speak of God's sovereignty in verses 37 through 40. 
And we don't have time to look at all the intricacies of this, how the personal responsibility and the sovereignty of God fit together. But Scripture teaches both. But ultimately, that salvation for spiritually blind people is in the hand of God. And so Jesus articulates that, that even though sinful and spiritually dead people don't come to Jesus, even so, Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will, and part and parcel of that will is to call it to himself those whom God has chosen. Amen? We know that. Look at verse 44. He articulates this. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they, shall, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Look at verse 65. Again, talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And he said, this is why I told you, says Jesus, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Again and again, Jesus' point is, I came to do my Father's will. And those of you who belong to me are going to come to me as my Father works in your hearts. Listen, that should comfort us. That should comfort us. There was a point in time in my life prior to coming to know Jesus that the sovereignty of God was a stumbling block to me. Just being honest. And now I can honestly say, even though not all of my questions are answered and we wrestle with this issue of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God is now what Spurgeon calls the pillow upon which I rest my head at night. You know why it's such a comfort to us to know that God is the one who works in the hearts of people, brothers? Because we all have loved ones that are non-believers. We all can identify, amen? Family members, extended family members, neighbors, good friends, bosses, employees that we might have under us, people that we love and we want to see them come to know Jesus. Listen, this is such a comfort to know that God is sovereign because all that we are called to do is to be faithful with the gospel message. Just preach Christ, share Jesus, and leave the results to the Lord. Does that answer all of your questions about the sovereignty of God and salvation? No. Preach it, right? No, it doesn't. But Scripture teaches me that salvation is in the hands of God. He calls me, however, to be the means through which He might save someone. Somebody shared the gospel with you at some point in time, right? Somebody did. Somebody witnessed to you. Somebody lived out the Christian life before you and you were able to ask, what is it that makes you so different? And you were able to share the good news about the person and the work of Jesus, that there was one who came into the world to die for sinners. And you need to repent and believe in this one. Stop trusting in your resources. Believe in him. Someone came to your life at some point and shared that message with you or something along those lines. And so be faithful, brothers. Be faithful and keep the main thing or really the main person, the main person. Share Christ. Preach Christ because only Christ can save. Amen? I find that emphasis of Jesus on the sovereignty of God so comforting to my soul. Now, you would think that Jesus' life-giving statement that he's the bread of life, that that would cause them to fall on their face and say, we believe in you, Lord. We trust you. Say no more, right? Where do I sign up to follow after you? Is that what happens? Nope. That's not what happens. What we have in verses 41 through 65, big chunk, but what we have in verses 41 through 65 is a long dialogue back and forth between Jesus and these people. And all we have time to, to do is, is to just to look at this big picture. So write this third point down, okay? Verses 41 through 65, the deceived skeptics. The deceived skeptics. 
And what you have here is sort of three subpoints under that are, are three distinct waves of exchanges between Jesus and his skeptics. The first wave is in verses 41 through 51 with skeptical Jews. Skeptical Jews. Notice that in verses 41 through 42, the Jews are, are grumbling amongst themselves. They're saying, this is the guy that many of us have known. I mean, how can this guy claim the things that he's claiming about himself, that essentially he's equal with God, which is why they wanted to kill him back in chapter 5? How could he claim those things? We've known this guy. This is the guy that we are familiar with. How does he make such claims? And of course, Jesus still, even though they're doubting him and questioning him this way, in verses 43 to 51, he reminds them once again of the sovereignty of God, that ultimately salvation is a work of God, and he reminds them that he himself is the bread of life that comes from God, that can satisfy them. And I just find that interaction so interesting, and it struck me for two primary reasons. I don't know about you as you've you meditated upon this passage. One, what amazing patience by Jesus. Amen? I mean, here are these people who've witnessed his miracles, have heard amazing teaching, teaching with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees, and yet they're still questioning him, they're doubting him, and Jesus continues to reason with them, to appeal to them, to give them a, a defense for why he's calling them to follow after him. And then the second thing that struck me was that they are familiar with Jesus, and yet, though they are familiar with Jesus and they know him, they still will not believe in him. I mean, of all people, those who are familiar with Jesus should have known that there was something unique, something different, something special about Jesus. Never did a man speak the way that this man spoke. Never did a man do the things that Jesus did as the eternal son of God, having clothed himself with humanity, the kinds of miracles that he did. He was one of unrivaled power, right brothers? We see miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching in the gospels. Never did a man did this. They should have believed in him. They were familiar with him. But instead, as is often the case and as the saying goes, familiarity breeds what? contempt. Familiarity can breed contempt. Isn't it true that the more familiar that we are with something or better someone, the more that we tend to take that thing or person for granted? You know, that can happen with our spouses. That can happen with our kids. That can happen with our grandchildren. That can happen with one another as brothers in Christ in the church where we were around one another so much, we begin to take one another for granted and no longer approach one another with appreciation and love and kindness and thoughtfulness and sensitivity. How much more with Jesus, brothers? There's a caution here for us, especially for us as Christians as we see these skeptical Jews who were familiar with Jesus. Don't ever read the word of God as a man of God or read the gospels where you're confronted with the magnificence of Jesus and the, the things that he'd said and the things that he did and not cherish him and treasure him as you did at first when you were converted. Don't ever allow Jesus to become so familiar to you that you no longer respond with a sense of, of worship and adoration and praise and love and a desire to serve and obey him, right? There's a danger of becoming cold and indifferent to Jesus, of just sort of going through the motions of him becoming so familiar to you. That can happen for the believer as well. 
And that's where we need to get on our knees before the Lord in the quietness of our heart and confess that to Him. Lord, I, don't, I, don't, I feel cold toward you. I repent of that, of not loving you proactively, fervently, zealously as I should love you. Of becoming so familiar with all of your great acts and works and your scriptures. And not being driven to marvel and to praise you and to worship. That can happen to us. That's what... It's going on with these skeptical Jews who even at the fundamental level don't have a sense of adoration for Jesus. They don't appreciate his, his teaching. They just don't see it. Well, there's a second wave of exchanges with skeptical Jews in verses 52 to 59. And the issue that these guys bring up is the statements uh, that Jesus is making about their need to partake of his flesh, to drink of his blood if they are to be satisfied. Now, again and again, they're interpreting Jesus' statements, including those, as some sort of morbid cannibalism. But Jesus is speaking about spiritual things, about appropriating, about partaking, about believing him and his claims. That's what Jesus is talking about. Faith, trust, belief. In fact, look with me in verse 61. But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit, capital S, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Underline that. This is what Jesus is getting at. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus is saying, I'm not speaking to you people about eating meat literally. There isn't enough of me to go around, right? I'm not speaking to you about, I'm speaking to you about spiritual matters, about appropriating my person and, and my claims by faith, about belief, about trust. I mean, he makes this point again and again and again. Verse 29 Verse 35, verse 47, belief, this is what I desire from you, to believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's speaking to them about personally putting their trust in him as the son of God. Of what Pastor Mike has often talked about in his books or when he preaches, that about this faith or trust that is a, that is a transfer of trust from self to Christ, right? That's faith. Faith is a, is a transferring of trust from ourselves, our resources, our works, our merits to Jesus Christ's person and his merits. That's what it's about. Now, this is tough for them. Hard words, right? Hard words. In verse 60, it says that many of these so-called disciples who are false disciples, if you take it in context, you know, they stop following after him. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this, right? But think about these three exchanges. These three exchanges. You have skeptical Jews in verses 41 through 51. You have more skeptical doubting Jews in verses 52 to 59. And then you have C, skeptical professing disciples or learners of Jesus in verses 60 and following. And what's the point? What's the point that John is making? That here you have his own Jewish people who don't believe in him, even though they're familiar with his works and words. Then you have so-called professing disciples or followers who are false followers who have been around him, who are witnessing everything that he's doing, and they simply do not believe. Do you know what we gather from these waves of exchanges? It's this, brothers. You can be so close to the truth 
and yet be so far away from it in your heart. Right? You can be so close physically to the truth and yet be so far away in your heart. Maybe that's you this morning. If we're honest, to some extent or another, all of us feel this, right? Lord, I just don't, I'm just kind of going through the motions right now. I don't want to, to feel like this is, I'm just, I'm practicing religion like the world. This is about a relationship with you. We all feel this to some extent or another. It's possible for you to have grown up in the church, for you to have memorized all the Iwana verses, for you to have heard the truth week in and week out, sermon after sermon, classroom after classroom, equipping class after equipping class, CBI class after CBI class, and still not have a relationship with the Lord. It's possible for you to even serve at a high level, to even be a teacher. I mean, I sat at two, two shepherds conferences ago in Sun Valley, California, with four pastors while Paul, Paul Washer preached the gospel to pastors. And a couple of guys even got up and said, why is he preaching the gospel yet again to pastors? And guess what? Two guys over, a guy that was an acquaintance of mine, got saved. He was a pastor who had planted a church two and a half years before that, brothers. It's possible for you to serve at a high level. It's possible for you to do that and just be going through the motions and not truly have a heart for Jesus, right? We've all met people like that. Take warning and take caution from these people who are so much around Jesus and yet they do not believe him and they don't embrace him from the heart. There's a big difference between you knowing about Jesus about God and you knowing Jesus himself in a personal relationship. Know the distinction by the grace of God. Mark it. I know and I love Shohei Otani. By the way, I'm a Dodgers fan. Sorry. You know, don't start throwing tomatoes or anything like that. How many of you are Dodger fans in here? Wow. Tuesday night, about half of the room raised their hand, so I was really comforted. I'm not very comforted right now, okay? <laughs> Angels are a far second. I want you to know that. I will cheer for the angels a far second. I won't cheer for them. I will cheer for them against any other team except the Dodgers. But I love Shohei Otani. Love watching the guy play and pitch and hit. I'm familiar with his amazing stats and some of his accomplishments and all of that. I know a lot about Otani, but I do not know Otani personally. And if I told you that I did, you'd probably be saying, Pastor Campus, you're on something right now, okay? Because you do not know Otani. There's a big difference between being familiar with someone from a distance and knowing someone personally in a personal relationship, right? So it is in the spiritual realm with Jesus. You can know a lot about Jesus, have a lot of facts about him, know a lot of Bible verses and all of that, but somehow, in the, if you're honest with yourself before the Lord, you have not really embraced those things from the heart. So as to put your trust in Jesus, repenting from your sin, turning from your sin, and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person and his merits. You're still trusting in yourself. And I pray that there's no one like that in this room. After all, remember, John's purpose is an evangelistic one, isn't it? So we cannot lose that. And he's preaching to some people who must have read this during the time that he wrote this, and re they read it, who maybe thought that they were believers, followers, but they were deceived. I just want to remind us of that, that none of us are past this. None of us are past becoming callous and cold to the truth and becoming so familiar with so much truth and yet not embrace it and appropriate it to our lives. 
That's why Jesus keeps saying again and again, trust me, believe. This is the work of God that you would believe, that you would appropriate my person and my work to your life so that you might have eternal life. Quality and quantity of life, right? That's his point again and again. Well, finally here, there are varying responses to Jesus. We see this in verses 66 through 71. So let's call this last point on your notes from verses 66 through 71, if you're taking notes, the trusting disciples. The trusting disciples. There were certainly those who walked away that day. We see this in verse 66. And by the way, it's not that they lost their salvation. We don't believe biblically that you can lose your salvation. 1 John 2.19 would tell us that, that people walk away because they were never truly of us. They were never truly followers of Jesus. Maybe they were in a state of deception, right? So there were those who walked away, not true followers. But then there were Jesus' true disciples. Minus Judas Iscariot, of course. And the spokesman, Peter, who utters this amazing, wonderful confession, if you look with me in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? All of these people are walking away. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, verse 68, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I mean, that's a, that's a massive confession right there. That is huge. That's a declaration of the deity of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't shut him down, does he? He doesn't say, don't say that about me. You can only say that about Yahweh, my father. No, he doesn't shut him down because Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is God of very God. Would they 11 later on struggle, even after a confession like this? Sure, sure. Was their understanding imperfect? For sure. But this is simple trust, simple faith in the Lord Jesus. And these disciples very soon in the weeks and months ahead, even though they're going to struggle, are going to show their allegiance to Jesus. And they're going to come out on the other end of those struggles and show that this confession here at the basic level was genuine, right? They believed in Jesus. How about you today? How about you? Let's not study passages like these and ignore the fundamental question that it begs. Have you come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God as He says He is? Have you come to put your trust in Him as your Lord and Savior? What is it in life right now that, is, that you're looking to for satisfaction? What are you pursuing that, that, that is higher that is elevated above the pursuit of Christ and cherishing and treasuring the king of the universe. Do you remember what Mark 8.36 says, what Jesus said there? What will it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? His soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's quite a statement. Even if you could achieve that one thing that you want to achieve... Even if you could have that one pursuit, that one goal, even if you could have that person, even if you could have that, ple that sinful pleasure, even if you could have all of those things, it wouldn't gain you any favor before a holy and just God on the day of judgment. And none of those things will ever ultimately make you happy. You have made us for yourself, Lord, 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. No one and nothing, brothers, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life, can satisfy you, right? You say, well, I'm a believer, Pastor Kempis. I'm a Christian. I know these things already. I gave my life to Christ by His grace working in my heart. Listen, having at one point put your trust in the all-sufficient Savior, are you daily, by His grace, looking to Him for contentment? Looking to be satisfied with the bread of life? Are you partaking of Him functionally? Yes, positionally, you are already in Christ, secure, you have hope, you have eternal life. But functionally, are you fleshing that out in the Christian life by truly coming to Him and walking in dependence upon Jesus? Being confronted daily through his word, through your daily Bible reading. Don't come to your daily Bible reading every day just to check off a list, brothers. Don't do that. Don't do that. Come to the word of God and open the word of God and meditate on the word of God to get to know a person. Amen? Our triune God. To worship him and marvel and serve and love him. And want to love others in the way that he wants us to love him. Come to him to cultivate a relationship. And so for perhaps for us who are believers, this is a time of, of reaffirming that Christ is all we need to recalibrate and refocus our thoughts and our desires and our priorities and our pursuits and our actions. Because if we're honest, brothers, and I'll be honest myself, every single day I struggle in my heart to put my trust in other things, even without thinking about it. And certain things suck my joy, take my joy away because I'm not focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. We can all struggle with this. I call them the killer peas, right? Put our eyes and our focus on prosperity, the accumulation of possessions, on power in the form of influence, on even people, on politics, even sinful pleasure. None of those things in and of themselves are evil, but when we elevate them above Christ and we worship those things above Jesus, they are sinful things, right? Amen? We look to these things and we pursue these things to find satisfaction, thinking that they will make us happy, but they never will. You know what Calvin said? Calvin said that our hearts are like idol factories. Meaning that our hearts are always worshiping something or someone. It's the way that God created us. But because of our sin, we don't worship God supremely. But our hearts are always worshiping something or someone. The question is not that your heart is not worshiping. The question is, what or whom is your heart worshiping? Is it Christ or is it other things? One of those killer pieces, right? Elevating those things above the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, before we break into our small groups, I want to do something right now, okay? I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just take a couple of minutes, just there in the quietness of your heart, okay? To talk to the Lord about just where are you this morning? Where are you first with regards? Do you have a relationship, a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to believe in him? Have you come to appropriate his person and his work to your life? And if you're a believer, where are you at as far as the condition of your heart? Where are you at? Ask God, Lord, search me and know my heart. And show me if there is any hurtful way in me. Take a couple of minutes to do that, brothers. And then we'll break into our groups after I pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the great reminder through John's gospel, your inspired word, that you have made us for yourself and that our hearts will always be restless until we continually find our rest in you. You made that possible to find our rest in you through the blood of your son, through Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we want to be men who are dependent not on ourselves, sufficient not in ourselves, but dependent upon the all-sufficient Christ. Lord, may we be able to say today, walking away from here, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. I am complete in him. He is enough. So that, Father, if you were to take away our health or other things from life that we tend to hold dear to our hearts, that, Lord, we could honestly say Jesus is enough, that he is the bread of life, that he is our king and the one that we seek to love and serve every day. Pray that you would just be honored even by our small group discussion. Father, thank you for the joy and the privilege of our fellowship and encouragement, mutual encouragement. May it be fruitful and profitable in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brothers. Go ahead and break into your groups.